Welcome to Soren Lit. I am Elle Marie Wood. I am an award-winning dark fiction author, screenwriter, and poet with novels in the psychological horror, mystery, and dark romance genres. I won the Golden Stake Award for my novel, The Promise Keeper. I am a Miko Award-nominated screenwriter and have won Best Horror, Best Action, Best Afrofuturism, Slash Horror, Slash Sci-Fi, and Best Short Screenplay Awards in both national and international film festivals. My short fiction has been published in groundbreaking works, including the Bram Stoker Award finalist anthology, Sycorax's Daughters, and Slay, Stories of the Vampire Noir. My academic writing has been published by Nightmare Magazine and the cross-curricular text Conjuring Worlds, an Afrofuturist textbook. I am the founder of the Speculative Fiction Academy, an English and creative writing professor, a horror scholar, and a frequent speaker in the genre convention space. My connections to the South are interesting. My grandmother, uh, lived in Oxford, North Carolina, and uh, she came up to New York, which is where I was born, when she was 14 years old. So, her, you know, she lived until she was 97 <laughs> in the same apartment complex, uh, same unit, literally no movement whatsoever once she got in that place. And um, never once did she ask to go visit home, talk about, talk much about home or uh, tell very many stories about home, which I found very curious. Later in my life, I bought uh, midlife, I'd say about 25 to 30, I became interested in genealogy and uh, started picking her brain about you know her time beforehand. And what I found was that the reason she didn't talk about that past was because it was so incredibly far removed for her. When she came up to New York, she came up to work. She came up to send money back to her family. Her father had passed away and she uh, was the oldest of 11 siblings. And so she was tasked with spend, you know, earning the money. So she sent the money back. Uh, most of her recollection of being young is when she was very young, when her father was home and, you know, working, but, you know, contributing to the family and, they, and everything was uh, comfortable. So when she left, she kind of left all that behind. And that's very sad when you think about it. But um, from that, I was able to pull a couple of different things from her, different pieces. My, my grandfather, who died when I was four months old, uh, he was also from uh, the South. He was from Laurenburg. Uh, and he also came up to New York to work, right? Very similar story. Um, I never had the opportunity to speak to him, so I don't, any stories that I know about him and his family come from me picking around through genealogy and finding out what I could. But um, I think that, you know, I learned the information as best I could and gathered whatever connection that I maintain through those conversations. And I'm, I'm pretty thankful for it. I think had I known a lot, I wouldn't have done the digging. And now that I know, you know I didn't know anything, I was able to do some of that digging. So uh, it's, it's a curious connection to the South, but it is there in my grandmother's, uh, in, my, in my family's lineage, but definitely my grandmother's stories when I would pull them from her. <laughs> uh, 
that Southern influence is not necessarily in my writing. It is something that carried, carried me through the process of research. You know, being a writer, you've got to learn how to research, you know, well, if you want to make your story feel authentic. And in doing the genealogy, uh, I was able to learn certain skills, um, you know, certain techniques and certain question answer processes to be able to get information from people who are not used to being interviewed, if you will. You know, I mean, I went into, I'd find people who were connected to us. Very interesting story. I'll tell this one. Found people who were connected to my grandfather's side of the family. And I mean, I'm talking about my grandfather on my father's side now. So I uh, found some people who were connected there and got them to sit and talk with me. They remembered, thankfully, they remembered my father because of one of his few visits to the South when I, before I was born and um, were open to having a conversation with me, you know, outside on the porch. We didn't go inside. That wasn't what they were going to do. Right. But we had a conversation on the porch about family and, you know, what, what, well, you know, who, what my, my great-grandfather was like, you know, where he went when he left the, the South and what happened, just sort of the, the path that happened. And interestingly enough, when I left their house, um, had done all this genealogy for, I guess at that point, maybe nine months. So I had a lot of information sort of in my head, in my notes. But at that point, I was there for one side of the family. But when I left their house, I made a left off their street. There was a cookout, my family gathering. It was this big sign on the street. It said, uh, Pettiford family uh, cookout and on my, my the grandmother I spoke about a moment ago my mother's side of the family my grandmother she that's her family line so I left my father's family line with my mother's family line I pulled over and I said um hi I'm so-and-so you know I told my mom Lisa and, and I'm connected to the Pettiford family through these people is this your family line and lo and behold it was Lo and behold, so I met about 50 of my direct cousins. It was amazing. But one interesting thing that I did find, and again, this is the beauty of research, because had I not done the research to find Pettiford, because I'm, I'm not my, only, I'd never heard that name before doing the research, right? My maiden name is Macon. My mother's maiden name is David. Like this grandmother that I'm speaking of is lost. There's no Pettiford anywhere, but you've got to do the research to find it. And so since I had done that research and was able to, you know, spout these names off real quick, I was allowed to come to the cookout, which was fantastic. And as I'm walking around, I was at a church and there was a, a graveyard. And at the very edge of the graveyard were these stones that were really flattened out and, you know, neglected and sunken. And as any genealogist knows, those that's the good stuff. You better go in there and start looking because something important is there. And it was my grandmother, the one I spoke about in the beginning, who had gone to New York to work. That was my grandmother's father's grave. She thought he had been paved over by the highway that was that I took to find them. She thought she'd been, he'd been paved over. She'd never gone back and found out. And nope, he was right there to the very edge of that stone. I could see and I could read his name. And I was stunned. I ran back to the family. I said, hey, is this who I think it is? And they're like, of course. I'm like, what? You say, of course, like you knew it. But of course, they did know it. We just didn't know it. And so I was able, my grandmother was alive at the time, I was able to take that information home to her and tell her I found something, you know? And it was, but it was research that got me there. You know, wonderful, oh my gosh, I can't believe my luck, to be honest. I mean, that was amazing. But the research got me there. And if I hadn't known before how important it was to do your due diligence with research, I knew then. 
So um, that is not necessarily influenced, but solidified, solidified my thought process about how you should go about your work and to make sure you're, you know what you're talking about when you sit down to write, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Um, <laughs> my biggest fear when I'm creating is, uh, that's a hard one because there's so many little things that can come in. I guess the biggest fear is that the, I won't be able to figure out how to get to the ending. When I start, I know what the ending is going in. So that can be as simplistic as, and then they all get in the car and drive away. Right, that could be that simplistic, but that's what I want to happen at the end of the story. So my goal in writing the piece is to get to that point. If when I'm thinking about it, because I'm a pantser, so I don't do a lot of outlining, hardly any outlining at all, uh, which is by nature what pantsers do, right? We don't outline. Uh, because I don't outline, if I sit and think about uh, how I might get to that ending, which is my why, what is my character's why? What's the point here? What are we talking about in this book? You have to have a reason. Uh, if I can't figure out how we might get to the point of them driving away, for instance, I may not really have a story. I may not have a novel. If I can't get to the point of figuring out how we get there with a, with it feeling solid, if you will, because sometimes you can figure out, you know, well, this is going to happen. A, a will happen and B happens and then we'll get to C and C is driving away. That's a short story. That's not a novel. That's too quick. <laughs> and if there's no good reason for any creation of turmoil prior to getting to that end, then it's just not a novel. So when in the very beginning of the process, I have that fear of, ooh, I don't know that I'm ever gonna figure out how to get to this ending I came up with. But then once I say, okay, here's some good bones. And again, no outline, just this is literally a five minute conversation in my head. Cause, because for me, if it takes 20 minutes, it's not, I don't have a story. I've been trying to force it. There's no story here. So if it's not quick, if I can't come up with something decently in a decent time period, it's not, it's not a legitimate organic story for me. So I move on. But um, then when I sit down and say, okay, I've got the bones, let's write it. And I'm writing it. And it happens every time. 10,000 words. And I go, Oof, can I make this a novel? <laughs> is that a novel? I don't know. Is this a short story? It sure is a long, short story. You know, <laughs> I just have this stuff. and then I keep going. And then in about 55,000 words, I'm like, are we stopping here? I mean, you need a little more, just a little more. Can you get it? Can you get it? But if I can't answer that question in five to 10 minutes, I got to step away from it because perhaps it was a short story that I was trying to force into being a long thing. And it, it's a fear, but it's for me, it's a controllable fear. If I really can't do it, then I can't do it. Then I need to pare it back down and pull out all of the fluff that probably exists if you know, I hadn't, if it's not a real novel, then there's a lot of fluff and you'll find it immediately. I'll pull it and make it what it actually is. So I have that same fear more than once, but I don't let it stop me at any point. Um, ha, my present writing project. So I somehow, I don't know where this came from. <laughs> I told myself, yeah, you know, write two novels in a year, of course. And I said, <laughs> I did that in January. I said, sure, why not? I'm looking at my note that I've written for myself for next year. I said that again. I don't really understand. I don't know why I can continue to do that. But whatever. Once I say I'm doing it, I'm doing it. So here we go. I've written the first one. The first novel's done. The second novel I am about 12,000 words into. So I just got past my fear of, oh my, is this a novel? I'm past that now. Um, 
in between I wrote a short screenplay, I wrote three poems, and I wrote four short stories, five, because I wrote one yesterday, five short stories. Um, I do that, I'll, sometimes I'll pull away from the novel and write a shorter piece because I'm just like, nah, I've got to let the character sit for a minute, so let me write something else. Um, so what am, I, what am I doing? A lot of stuff, quite a bit, and I'm always doing quite a bit. I think that that's just the kind of way I do it. I, don't, I usually, when I'm writing a novel, once I get into the, the real groove of it, I don't write anything else. But, you know, unless I have to, <laughs> you know, if I need a break from some, some character, I'll write a different character. And that's usually a short story. Um, I don't know. I, lots of things. <laughs> I, I was lucky enough to get this multiple book deal, like early on. I don't know, early, that's relative. I mean, I've been writing for 40 years. I wish I, I wish that wasn't the truth. I wish that wasn't a true number, but it is. <laughs> And I've been writing a really long time, so it wasn't early on. No, I mean I would say early in the at, at, in the stage of me trying to really actively get a, a writing my writing career off the ground for the second time. I took a big break. I started in early two thousands with um, a novel and a short story collection, and another one right on its heels, and then another novel on its heels. So four big pieces out at the same around the same time, and then I took a huge break over a 10 year break. And then when I came back, I came back, you know, saying, okay, let's go, let's go again. And uh, early in that second portion of it, I got this multiple book deal. And so therefore I've got deadlines that are pushed out up to gosh, 2027, which is awesome. <laughs> but you know, that when you gotta realize you gotta produce and you see that calendar, and 2027 will come real quick if I don't have these things written down, right? So I'm pretty prolific, so I, I'm not too worried about it. And I like to stay ahead, so I'm three books ahead of myself right now, which is where I wanna be. You know, I just like, I like to be in that spot. So, but that said, I, I maintain that I have to continue writing, which is why I've written that crazy note to do it again next year. I don't know where that came from, but it's there. And I'm not going to take it down. So away we go. <laughs> um, sacred text. Hmm. Ira Levin. And that might be a not answer. But Ira Levin's style is one that I feel so close to. Because it's such a casual. I mean, he was psychological thriller writer, if you will. I mean, I'm talking about the person who wrote Rosemary's Baby. You know, um, Separate Wives, if you've ever read or watched any of those movies, you know what I mean. Very, um, wow, very casual writing style that loop that brings you in and you might think, oh, this is just going to be a nice little story. I'll be done with this soon. It's not going to bother me. And then you realize that you're terrified. And you don't exactly know why. You don't exactly know why. <laughs> and he's still being very casual about his writing style. But it touches you. It touches it like touches you through the front, back, and touches your spine. Like through the front of your body, it'll touch your spine, which is kind of amazing. Because most people don't think of Ira Levin when they think about, you know, horror writers or thriller writers. I mean, often the answer is Stephen King. And sure, absolutely, nothing to be taken from Stephen King at all. Shirley Jackson's another favorite, you know, that people like to, to talk about. But I think that, and, and, and nothing to be taken from her. I mean, I think that... Um, there's so many pieces that are so amazing from them that they are definitely solidified as uh, people whose work should be studied. But I think that Ira Levin absolutely 
should be looked at, should be reviewed, should be <laughs> studied, should have notes written down about him, and should be recognized as one of the greatest storytellers from a psychological horror standpoint, because you don't see him coming at all. But and when you see it, now it's too late. Oh, well, I think that saying that, I'd probably like to start in and give you a little bit of sa a sample of what I do. Um, why don't I start with The Realm, the first book in The Realm? I'll hold the book up. The cover is amazing. I love this cover so much. I don't know, you, if you can't see it and you have the opportunity to take a look at the, the image, it is fantastic. It embodies exactly what I was hoping for with this cover, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but The Realm is the first story in this trilogy that I wrote. And speaking of that multiple book deal, let me give you a little background on that. I was in Sycorax's Daughters. It was a story I came back to, you know, the, the writing world with when I came back out. And it's a great story, one of my favorites. Um, and that's hard to say because you know you love all your work, right? And I've written over, gosh, over 180 short stories. That's kind of difficult to say. I've got a favorite, I don't know, whatever, but I love this one. <laughs> and um, we were I was so pleased to have it in this anthology and we were, running towards a Bram Stoker Award. We were just, I mean, it, it would have been monumental because it would have been the very first um, at collection of African-American writers to ever have won a Bram Stoker Award. We made it all the way to the finals and did not win, you know, and that's just what happens. I mean, you don't win everything. And with all that loss, I submitted to the publisher who put this thing together because I was so amazed by the vision, you know, I submitted to the publisher and I won. <laughs> if you will. Like, I mean, I got this book deal that, you know, was off of a loss. So, I mean, if you're ever, if you're ever listening to this and you're wondering to yourself, oh my gosh, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I, I keep, you know, I'm not winning. What I, no, sometimes losing is winning. I turned that around into a win in a way that I had not expected. And I said, well, why don't I just try? Because what else I write to put my work together and have people be moved. But if I don't try to do something with it, no one's just gonna come knocking on my door asking for it, right? So I went out on a limb and I, here we are. His publisher says to me, I'd like to have you know, a, a series of books. Now, horror fiction doesn't always do that. That's really a fantasy and uh, science fiction sort of approach to writing. And I'm not saying we can't do it, obviously we, we can do it, but it's not our normal. <laughs> And I was used to writing standalone books and I just kind of was like, oh boy, I don't know. I mean, I can't, maybe, I think I can do it, <laughs> you know? And I said, well, they took a chance on the writing that I've put out and so why don't I just try it? And now, this this year, we're gonna see the third book come out. Actually, next month, we'll see the third book in the trilogy come out. We're closing it out, this story's done. So it's kind of exciting. I was able to pull it off. <laughs> and um, it's, I. It's such a fun series too. It's it's weird to say that about a horror or science fiction uh, series of books, but it's true. Very action based. Um, yeah. So one of all that said, I'll start with the realm. So the realm is um, about a, a a man who has to. Well, I don't want to give too much away before I read, but he has to determine what he'll do to save his family, and this choice that he makes, how far he'll go actually doesn't only just save his family, but it saves the world as well. So let me go ahead and start in. With chapter one, I'll start at the very beginning. It didn't happen the way they said it would. No angels came to greet him. No bright light funneled a path through the darkness. 
No relatives called to him from the beyond. He didn't feel warmth, acceptance, or love. He felt emptiness. He saw nothing in the moments before death, just an impenetrable darkness that crowded his vision like oil spreading in water, encroaching on the faces of his son and daughter-in-law, blackening them, obliterating them. He could hear them after his eyes dimmed, standing open and blind like black holes. His tear ducts dried up as his son cried over him. The sound of Doug's grief, the guttural moans roiling and meshing with his pleas, his barters with God to save his father, was more than Patrick could take. Trying but failing to lift his hand from, the si from his side and stroke his son's head, Patrick silently prayed that his hearing would dissipate as quickly as his sight had. Patrick could only imagine what Doug and Chris were seeing as his body broke down in front of them. Images of eyes ruined by broken capillaries filled with blood, his slacked mouth allowing a discolored tongue to peek through tortured his mind. He struggled for every breath now, death's grip holding fast and firm. The thought of the kids seeing him fight for air, his face a twisted mass of pain and effort, upset him more than he thought it would. Death was not pretty. Doug moaned and Chris cried while Patrick's eyes grew drier and his skin grew paler. He thought it would never end, the display, the sick, cruel game death was playing, that he should witness it, that he should have to hear the calmness his son usually displayed crumble and fall away was torture, if ever there was a definition of the word. The devil, then. It was his work, after all, he supposed. He was on his way to hell, and this was but a taste of what was to come. And then there was silence. Utter silence. The sound of his son's anguish was gone, mercifully. The hum of the respirator, the clicking of the rosary beads the man in the next bed held, the squeak of rubber soles on the sanitized floor as the nurse and doctor, nurses and doctors hurried to his side, all sound had disappeared. He wondered what would be next to go. His memory? He quizzed himself to see if it was already gone. What's my name? Patrick Richardson. How old am I? 59. Was, was more like it, he corrected himself. After all, he was dead. Dead. Gone. Finished. Patrick stood in the pitch black silence, confused and unbelievably sad. He was dead. He would never see the baby that Chris was carrying or his first grandchild. Uh, he would never watch another boxing match with his son and friends over a beer and pizza. He wouldn't get the chance to watch the waves break on the shore from a beach in the Caribbean. He wouldn't do anything anymore because he was dead and death was dark. I'll stop there. <laughs> So, um, you know, I think if you want to find more, if you want to learn more about the realm and the series that, you know, follows, if you want to find more about the new series, which is called uh, Affinity, and the first book is called The Trist. It came out in 
February of this year and book two will be out next year. She kind of got me on this, uh, let's write a series thing. I'm doing another one. <laughs> that one is Dark Romance. So if you want to find out more about Elmarie Wood and what I put out into the world, you can find me at elmariewood.com or on Twitter at at Wood, the number one, or on Facebook at elmariewood, or it was facebook.com slash Wood. I took a class that said that we should brand ourselves. And so I listened. So everything is L. Marie Wood. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for listening to Soren Lit. Please review the work of our featured writers and other creatives by following our website at sorenlit.com. That's S-O-R-E-N-L-I-T.com. See you next time. Thank you.